Um, and after the presentation, uh, Seamus will then be joined by Kieran Hancock. Uh, Kieran is the business editor of the Irish Times, and Kieran will interview Seamus, uh, chat in some more detail about his thoughts, um, and again, some insight from this morning's uh, session and find it useful for, for your planning for your, your business in the year ahead. So um, without further ado, we'll uh, kick off with Rowena Fitzgerald. Thanks, Rowena. Well, and good morning, everyone. Uh, so my name is Rowena Fitzgerald. I lead our financial services regulation practice in Mason, Hayes and Kern. And financial regulation is exactly what I'm going to speak about this morning. I'll take a look back on some of the regulatory developments from 2019. And I'll also look at the year to come and what's in store for us. To begin with, I'll touch on some areas that are common across all areas of financial services regulation. And then to conclude, I'll focus on some of the developments that particular industries can expect in the year to come. Kick things off. In 2019, the central bank continued its focus on culture. This began a number of years back for the banking industry, but that focus is now going to trickle through to other industries. The focus on culture is part of the central bank's three-year strategic plan. And in the wake of various issues such as the tracker mortgage examination, the central bank has said that it's strategically committed to elevating the regulation of behaviour by regulated entities. And this means for everybody in the audience, the focus on culture is here to stay. And taking this to a practical level, in April 2019, we saw the central bank's letter to all regulated entities dealing with shortcomings it found relating to fitness and probity. In particular, it found failings around the ongoing nature of being fit and proper, and also failures to report serious issues to the central bank in respect of individuals. So it's important for firms to remember that in terms of individuals within your firm, you have an obligation not only at the outset of their appointment to carry out fitness and probity checks and due diligence, but also for the course of their lifetime or their career within your firm. Also, where there are serious issues in respect of an individual, you should be prompted to ask yourself, is that person still fit and proper? And do we need to report any particular issue to the central bank? And these are some of the, the issues we often help clients with. Uh, from my side of the house, working with clients to determine whether there is a regulatory issue or whether something might need to be reported to the central bank and also what to do from an employment perspective. And the two aren't often aligned. Um, so for example, we dealt with an issue where there was um, a senior person who was a, a pre-approval controlled function holder and they were found by their organisation to have sexually harassed a colleague. I was asked to look at the, reg the regulatory implications of that and whether that issue needs to be brought to the attention of the central bank. And in that particular issue or instance, my view was that while the conduct was not acceptable and it was completely wrong, it wasn't necessarily something that went to the probity of the individual and therefore uh, in that instance it didn't need to be reported to the central bank. But a huge caveat with that, you know, you need to look at things on a case-by-case -case basis. One size doesn't fit all. Um, and to give you another example, we also have dealt with a situation where there's a firm regulated by the central bank and a senior person in, in a PCF role, um, it became known, and there's some, sorry, there's somebody in a PCF role, and then it became known that two employees um, who are married, but, but not to each other, were having an affair. Um, and okay, you might say, well, that makes for great gossip, but why would the central bank care? Um, but in that circumstance, it turned out that the, the person in the senior role was bringing the more junior person on business trips with them and claiming expenses relating to that individual. So it was at that point you need to ask yourself, okay, 
you know, is there an issue around probity here? And ultimately, we formed the view that that was something that needed to be notified to the central bank because that person had been claiming expenses dishonestly. So where is this whole area going? Um, and really, I think the central bank's April letter is just a precursor for things to come. Um, and we're now going to have an individual accountability regime, um, which is going to be rolled out across the financial services industry over the next number of years. The first thing to mention, though, in terms of this framework is that we don't know exactly what it's going to look like because we don't even have draft legislation yet. We were to have a draft heads of bill by the end of last year, but considering we don't even have a government at the moment, I wouldn't hold my breath in the short term for that one. But we can speculate on, on what we think the intended regime will look like. So it's expected that the, the framework, so the individual accountability framework, will comprise four elements. There's going to be enforceable conduct standards, which will include binding obligations on individuals and firms to conduct, conduct themselves with integrity, due care, skill and diligence in respect to their roles and to cooperate with regulators. There will be a senior executive accountability regime, and I'll touch on that in a bit more detail in a moment. There will be a certification regime involving further enhancements to the current fitness and probity regime. And there will also be proposals for a unified enforcement process, meaning that the central bank, if there is an, uh, an action on their part, they'll be able to pursue individuals directly instead of also having to pursue the regulated entity first. So touching on the Senior Executive Accountability Regime, or SEERS, so in the first instance, that regime is proposed to apply to senior people in credit institutions, insurance undertakings and investment firms, with a view then to being rolled out across the rest of the financial services industry. It's expected that the regime will borrow heavily from the similar UK regime, and in short, SEERS means that there will be an ability to hold individuals to account where there's regulatory contraventions in the business area for which they're responsible. So to comply with SEERS, firms are going to have to review their senior, um, senior management arrangements, their governance arrangements and their HR processes. Firms will have to draw up and provide the central bank with statements of responsibilities, with prescribed responsibilities for particular roles within their organisation, and they'll also have to have management responsibility maps, setting out clear reporting lines and responsibility lines within their firm. And while the introduction of the, the regime will take some time, it is likely to require significant changes to organisational structures and HR practices within firms. There is a consultation process that's expected to happen at some point this year, depending on when we have draft legislation. So I think now is the time to start work on that front so that when the consultation process does come around, you can engage in meaningful interaction with the central bank on SEERS. So the whole point of SEERS is to influence culture within regulated entities from the top down, so the most senior persons leading by example. Um, and when that doesn't happen, there's always a threat of enforcement. So I'll turn very briefly to some of the central bank enforcement actions that we saw during the course of 2019. For individuals, and by way of reminder, Section 25 of the Central Bank Reform Act, the, the 2010 Act, affords the central bank the power to investigate individuals where they have a concern around their fitness and probity. And at the out, uh, as a result of that, that investigation, the central bank can issue a prohibition notice um, or a suspension notice in, protect, in respect of a particular individual. And in the last four years, we've seen eight prohibition notices, and we saw two last year. 
Um, the most recent being in September 2019, where there was an individual who was appointed as an executive director of a money lender, and it transpired that he hadn't disclosed full information in his IQ around the reasons why he left his previous employment. So in that instance, the central bank um, issued a prohib prohibition notice to that individual, stopping them from taking up a controlled function for a period of two years. And then in February, there was an individual who was prohibit prohibited from taking a, a prescribed function or a controlled function um, within a regulated entity for an indefinite period because they had misappropriated client funds, which I think is fair enough. Um, if anyone disagrees with that, you're going to have serious problems under Sears when, when it comes into play. Um, so turning to the, the enforcement actions against regulated entities themselves, we actually only had seven settlement agreements with the central bank last year. Um, and I'll touch on a few of those this morning. They're quite varied. Um, you'll see there's a, a broad mix of, of different areas within the financial services sector. And in November, we saw Savvy Credit Union being fined €185,000 for failures to comply with the long-term lending requirements that apply to credit unions, and also a failure to comply with the restriction on paying directors in credit unions. In October 2019, BVP Investments was fined €6,000 for holding clients at client assets in breach of its authorisation. In July 2019, Wells Fargo was fined close to €6 million Euros for issues around reporting its capital position and liquidity testing. In June, JP Morgan um, Administration Services was fined for breaches relating to the outsourcing of its fund administration business. And in April, Bank of Montreal was fined over 1.2 million for failures in its processes and controls relating to the submission of operational risk returns to the central bank. And also in that instance, there was an over-reliance on group policies. So you can see kind of the, the, the varying degrees of fines. You can see the, the international players getting bigger fines from the central bank and the smaller domestic players receiving smaller fines. Turning to the, the tracker mortgage examination, we've only had one outcome to date, and that was permanent TSB, who was fined 21 million in May last year. And for 2020, we'll be waiting to see how the other mortgage lenders fare in terms of the outcome of their tracker mortgage examinations with the central bank. So looking at the year ahead, uh, for this year, the central bank has said it's going to conduct a review of the consumer protection code. So that one will be common across all areas of the financial services industry. For insurance, the central bank focus on culture, as I said, um, is going to move to, to insurance companies in the first instance, and we've already seen new rules around transparency of information that needs to be provided to policyholders relating to motor insurance. And the central bank has also said that it will examine the issue of price differentiation between the motor, um, motor and home insurance markets, and to consider how insurance companies are using new technologies such as big data and algorithms in respect of their customers, and ultimately whether those practices give rise to unfair treatment of, of consumers. With the central bank publishing an interim report that's expected sometime later this year. So, so watch the space on that one. For investment firms, we have the investment firms regulation and directive um, coming down the tracks in June 2021. And these proposals are designed to make the rules that apply to investment firms more proportionate and more appropriate to the levels of risk that those firms undertake. And the upshot of that ultimately will be that only certain systemically relevant investment firms who engage in bank-like activities will actually be subject to the full rigours of the Capital Requirements Directive, whereas other investment firms will be subject to a more tailored and pared-back MIFID II regime. For lenders, 
and particularly banks, the, the protection of borrowers and mortgage arrears is going to continue to be a key priority for the central bank. And for newer lenders and credit servicers, the central bank has said that they'll subject the new non-bank lenders to robust authorisation and supervision requirements, including the 34 credit servicers or proposed credit servicers who are in the process of applying for a full authorisation from the central bank at the moment. In addition, for, for banks and other mortgage lenders engaged, um, in respect of lending on uh, for, for housing loans, I expect that those lenders are in the throes of dealing with the central bank in relation to legal charges applied to borrowers and mortgage arrears. So I think we can expect more on that um, during the year to come. For funds, the central bank has said that they're going to focus um, on concluding its review into the implementation of the fund management company guidance and rules. There will be a review of liquidity management in USITs and a review of use its use of security lending measures. And to wrap up, and as always, and this is common across all areas of, of the financial services industry except for, for non-life insurers and their intermediaries, the central bank is going to focus on anti-money laundering. And one area that it said it's going to focus on in particular is transaction monitoring, um, focusing on IT systems and, and how they're used for transaction monitoring in order to avoid issues where those systems could fail to spot a, a suspicious transaction and then it's missed. Um, another area that Central Bank is going to focus on is risk assessments and a focus on the design and operation of those risk assessments. So as a word of warning, now is the time to consider both your firm's own risk assessment in respect of its own business and also the risk assessment that you apply to your customers. So that was very much a bird's eye view on what's, um, what's going on when it comes to regulation and a, and a flavour of things to come over the course of this year. If anyone has any questions, please feel free to get these up on Slido and I'd be happy to deal with them at the end of the session. But for now, thank you very much and I'm going to hand you over to Frank. Good morning, my name is Frank Flanagan. I'm going to take you through three recent developments in, in relation to enforcement that are making life a little bit more difficult for lenders to enforce security and to enforce loans. Uh, in Bank of Ireland Mortgage Bank in O'Malley, the Chief Justice gave a judgment that has created a lot of uncertainty in the marketplace. We'll talk briefly about that. In Grehan, the uh, court found that effectively the secured lender had to fund the repair of a large car park out of the proceeds of sale and we're starting to see changes flow through in relation to the enforcement of housing loan mortgages because they're all post 1 December 2009 and it's only been gradual but there are a few changes flowing through. Very little has been written about this stuff uh, basically because it's going to be used against you guys if, it's if we put something in print. So it's not, we haven't been writing about it, and none of the other large firms have been writing about it. I think most people are actually aware of most of these developments at some level. Before Bank of Ireland and O'Malley, a summary judgment for debt was very simple. You set out the facility letter, the drawdown, the default, the fact you'd sent a demand, and, and the failure to pay on demand. And if nobody challenged, that was more or less sufficient to get your judgment. In O'Malley, Chief Justice, who was originally a mathematician, raised the bar. And I'm putting up a quote from the Chief Justice. Uh, basically, being a mathematician, he wanted to see a nice, clear way to arrive at the figure. 
and how it was calculated. Uh, this appears to create an obligation even on the central office. And this, normally, you file a summary summons. If there's no response, you can get judgment in the office. But this appears to create an obligation even on the central office to carry out an assessment of the proof of debt akin to what's been happening from the ECJ jurisprudence in relation to unfair terms. Uh, he very much said he didn't want to be prescriptive about what evidence was required, but he did say the endorsement of claim can refer to documents already sent to the defendant, so you can refer to bank statements, which will be deemed to be incorporated if they provide the necessary detail. But he also said that the methodology had to be set out, it had to be, the methodology had to be clear, so you could calculate from those statements or from whatever was provided. Unfortunately, in that case, the statements didn't show the changes in interest rate. So he said even if they had been referred to, they wouldn't have been sufficient. So post O'Malley, ideally what you require is a full state set of statements of account showing the changes in interest rate, showing all the charges, an explanation as to how the calculations were carried out. So if there is anything strange in terms of 360 over 365 or 366 over 360, all of that stuff needs to be set out in fine detail at some level. Uh, as I said, the Chief Justice said he didn't want to be prescriptive, so nobody actually really knows what's going to be sufficient at one level he gave this judgment from a slightly refined environment in the Supreme Court. Uh, it's not going to work terribly well if it's interpreted very literally in that, a busy high court list. And I suspect ways will be found around it. Certificates under the Bankers Books Evidence Act are normally provided for in facility letters or in general terms. And they allow you to, sorry, they state in the terms that they're prima facie evidence of debt, we may get away with them in a lot of cases. Uh, the consequences for non-performing loans. There are a lot of amendment applications currently before the courts in relation to summonses that have already issued. There's been no written judgments I checked again this morning yet following O'Malley. One problem is if the plaintiff, if you actually issue a summons and you refer to statements that have been issued to the plaintiff, to the defendant, you can be called on to produce those documents. Anything that's referred to in the summons, you may have to produce. Uh, a lot of the time, the purchases of loans don't get full sets of statements going back to the inception of the account. They may get three years, they may get five years, it depends. Uh, detailed explanations probably need to be set out by account type, so if you've got a loan type that's referenced to Eurobor with 366 over, sorry, with actual over 365 interest, you probably need to set out a precedent for how that calculation is done. And there does, I think, need to be a real breakdown between principal interest and charges, and it doesn't look like capitalised interest can count as principal. It wasn't what was borrowed in the first place. Uh, consequences for acquired loans, there's a very old maxim that says, says a freak, to the effect that a frequent error makes the law, uh, especially where people actually entered into transactions in reliance on what that law was. Loan acquirers have acquired 
billions in loans based on what the jurisprudence was prior to O'Malley. I think there's probably scope for us to get there and that it's going to, like some of the other developments like start mortgages, it's going to take a little while to get there. Uh, mitigation on an ongoing basis. Ideally, if you've got somebody with a long loan history and they're getting renewal letters, think about issuing a new facility with an agreement as to what the balance is today. You don't really want a 20-year history on a loan. So you've got fewer statements you eventually have to enforce. Think about simplifying the calculation. It doesn't, it may, it may work for optical reasons. It doesn't really matter if it's 4.5% simple interest rather than 4.25% interest calculated on a 366 over 360 basis with something done with leap years. The simpler it is, the easier it is to explain to the court, the easier it's going to be. And everything needs to go on the face of the statement. Every interest rate change, every charge, with some easy way to explain it. Okay. The second thing I want to talk about is Graham and Manu's business campus. This one was a strange case where the developer built car park as part of a campus which had significant defects in it. There was no architects or engineers cert. It entered into a contract with the owner's management company to transfer the common areas. And when the receiver went to sell the last unit, the owner's management company sought that the car park be repaired out of the proceeds of sale and it succeeded. What happened here is the, the principles behind the developer granted a mortgage in 2000. A year later, the developer sold the land to the development company and entered into the management agreement. A year later, two years <coughs> later, the developer granted a debenture. And a long time later, the receivers were appointed. The, car park was, the court found the car park was badly designed. The agreement with the Management company incorporated a condition that meant it had to be possible to certify con compliance with planning. And the receiver sold, when they were appointed, sold a number of units by way of long leases, which effectively bound the purchasers to the management agreement. So the court found the receivers had adopted the management agreement <coughs> or couldn't deny it. They had no personal liability because the contracts were well drafted. The developer and the receivers had the obligation to carry out the repairs, and the repairs had to be funded out of the five million proceeds of sale from the last unit. Uh, Mr. Justice Halton has a bit of a reforming zeal. He's the judge currently running the commercialist. He previously stated in the case I was in, which was Kulmaline, uh, some of the questions may involve a careful reappraisal of the common law. So he has an appetite to reform. And there is a certain attractiveness to the people the receiver sold units to were entitled to a car park that worked. But in effect, he, he gave an order for specific performance against receivers and effectively required the secured lender to fund it. There have been very few cases where this has been done previously. It's always where the dementia was granted after the contract was entered into. It's usually for short term. Uh, on an ongoing basis, looking at mitigating this, you should be looking really careful, carefully at pre-contractual security documents, pre-security -contra pre contractual documents. So if the company is committed to do things with land you're taking security over, take a careful look. 
try to require transfers of things like a building, a car park to in, in the common areas, at least before the statute of limitations runs out against the engineers and the architects. Uh, enforce these accumulations of time here. Lenders need, need to be really vigilant to see that things are actually certified promptly. There was no architects or engineers search for this. And a careful analysis needs to be done before a receiver sells part of an estate. If he sells one unit and grants the people he sends, gets the people he sells to in, into the management company, there's a much greater chance you're on the hook for this. Now, I know one case we're involved in injunctions being granted by the circuit court, but we don't think that's going to be sustained. Finally, the thing I want to talk about are housing loan mortgages. It's been slow coming. The Land and Conveyancing Law Reform Bill was a carefully crafted bill in the first place. When the financial crisis hit, they cobbled housing loan mortgages into it. And it, should, it only applies to mortgages granted after 1 December 2009. Very recently, the Property Registration Authority has started getting awkward <coughs> in relation to the enforcement of questionable mortgages, questionable, whether questioning whether or not they're a housing loan mortgage. The effect of it being a housing loan mortgage is lots of the provisions of the 2009 Act can't be contracted out of. So you can't take possession unless the mortgage or consents in writing within seven days or you get a court order. Uh, the problem is the scope of what's a housing loan mortgage. Every mortgage granted after 1 December 2009 to individuals where the mortgage is actually a housing loan mortgage, so it's a house that the individual intends to live in, land he intends to build a house on, a house intended for his relatives to live in, or residential property acquired as a consumer is a housing loan mortgage. It also applies, unfortunately, where the provisions haven't been disapplied. This is one of the things we're seeing where a mortgage was sent out to a borrower's solicitor in 2008 it wasn't actually executed. It comes back dated 1st of January 2010. Because it's an old pre-Land and Conveyancing Law Reform Act format mortgage, it doesn't disapply any of the provisions of the 2009 Act, so you're stuck with them. And finally, it applies where it's a transaction that a solicitor is not in a position to certify that it's not a housing loan mortgage. So, there have been lots of negotiations with the Property Registration Authority trying to convince them to adopt a sensible approach. They in, eventually, in end of 2018, they issued a practice direction that requires evidence either that the charger is not a natural person or they want a solicitor certificate that the mortgage in charge is not a housing loan mortgage. This is actually a very difficult thing for solicitors to issue, and the Law Society came back almost immediately with its own practice direction. It basically says only the bank solicitor is familiar with the, the terms on which the mortgage was granted can cert should certify this. They should be wary about issuing them. In the event of any doubt, they shouldn't issue the cert. So we're faced with a very difficult position. A lot of the time you can look at it and you can go, yeah, it's a housing estate. There's, there's a few cases where it's absolutely safe, lending to companies is safe, lending to a partnership is safe, that's two or more persons carrying on business with a view to a profit. Lending against developed commercial property is fine. 
lending to two people to buy a house, potentially questioning, lending to somebody to build a housing estate where they actually have an intention of getting their son to live in one of the houses is absolutely not safe. It's effectively cross-contaminated. So some thoughts on mitigating risk as we stand at the moment. Be careful to use the correct mortgage. I've actually seen commercial property on housing loan mortgage paper. If you're lending for the acquisition of land, you should probably at this stage be requiring a covenant that it's not intended to construct a house to be occupied by the borrower or a close relative on the land. And if it is, carve out that piece of the land and watch very carefully about taking cross security over the borrower's PDH. If you're lending for a big parcel of commercial land and a shopping centre and you decide it would be a good idea to throw in security over the borrower's 2 million euro PDH, you've probably cross-contaminated and potentially made the whole, made all of the commercial security a housing loan mortgage. You're stuck with housing loan mortgage enforcement provisions. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so I'm just going to offer some sort of broad um, economic commentary of some of the, the trends we've seen over the past while, uh, looking at aggregate terms of the overall economy, uh, and maybe in particular focus on uh, one sector that perhaps uh, gets a lot of attention recently and was a, a key issue when it came to uh, the recent general election. So I'm just going to focus on uh, three main points, just look at the general overall performance of the, the, the domestic economy, our internal position, look briefly at our external position, how we're dealing with flows of the rest of the world, both in terms of money and people, and the sector I'm going to look at with some general comments. Uh, we'll be looking at the housing sector. Uh, and just to sum up, we'll be looking at like internally the economy looks uh, quite strong, performance has been positive in recent times. And our external position perhaps is even surprisingly strong, maybe even too strong, perhaps give us scope to do more. Uh, and on housing, uh, I think here the general uh, uh, perspective uh, has been negative, uh, but maybe we're beginning to see so, some positive changes uh, sort of return to normalization uh, in the, the different elements of our uh, housing sector. So just looking at the, the recent general election, I'm going to borrow uh, some of the uh, exit polls that the, the Irish Times did, uh, that Kieran might, might reference later, uh, in terms of what was important when people were, were casting their ballot. So one of the questions asked was how important was the ability to manage uh, the economy to how you voted today? Uh, and the first two here were very important and somewhat important, and they add to, to 97%. So it would seem that managing the economy, in terms of this one-off question, uh, was quite important, with only 2% saying it was not that important, uh, and no one saying not stated. So managing the economy seemed to be an important issue. Uh, and if you look at sort of indicators are the performance of the economy, how is it going? Here we just have the number of people employed, uh, those working, uh, just the, this crude number. Uh, one thing we have a problem with with the Irish economy is kind of getting a handle on what's happening. Uh, because of the, the way some of our statistics are distorted uh, by the presence of the multinationals. But they don't really distort this one. They contribute it, but they don't distort it. So this is the number uh, employed going back over 15 years, uh, and I suppose it shows that the swings and roundabouts uh, that we go through, that the previous boom up to 2008, the crash flatlining for a while, but the last six, seven years has been onward, ever upward. Uh, and this performance has been unreactive. You predicted that back here. You've been laughed out of the place, but even you got as far as here, and you said the growth would continue, maybe even accelerate, uh, you mightn't have been considered to be uh, the best of forecasting. And that's what's happened. And we're now well above where we were before. So here we were, about 2.25 million people at work. We're now over 2.3. And even within that, like we have 100,000 fewer people in construction. 
about a quarter of a million people in construction here, directly in construction, 150,000 here. So ex-construction, the gap is over 200,000. We've seen a huge increase in employment over quite a, a short period of time. And it's got us back to a stage <coughs> where full-time employment is above where it was previously. Sometimes you hear concerns about what type of jobs have been created. Are they low-paid, precarious uh, jobs in which you can't uh, generate a living from? Well, if you look at just the gap between, or the difference between part-time employment, which actually in the early parts of the recovery decreased, relatively flat, most of the increase has been in full-time employment. And we don't see an increase in um, the self-employed, the precarious. The increase has been in employees. And if you look at it over a very, very long perspective, so we go all the way back to the foundation of the state in the early 1920s, we can see that where we are now is close to unprecedented. There really is only two occasions, the 1920s, where people might have been leaving the country, the early 2000s, where tens of billions of credit was entering the country, and now our unemployment rate has been as low as it is. <coughs> so the performance from an employment perspective is very, very strong, <laughs> and the drop has been very, very rapid. And for the past while, organisations like the, the Fiscal Council, which I was involved in, and other commenters, I'm saying we might start re reaching real constraints. That do we have the workers to fill the employment opportunities that are being created uh, as we get close to what we term uh, full employment? And one area where this sort of pressure might be beginning to show is just in wages, broad level of wages in the economy. And this is just a chart of the, the EU 15. Uh, the 15 countries that traditionally make up the EU15. I still have the UK in my EU15, and we will adapt, I suppose, uh, when they, uh, well, they have left, but when they formally get there. But if you look at the, the changes in hourly wages in the, the business economy of the EU15, so excluding the, pr the public sector, and look at it adjusting for inflation. <coughs> so 2015, up to the end of 2019, for about the past two years, we've essentially had the fastest growing wages in the EU15. Occasionally, some countries bumped up to knock us off for a quarter or two. Here was Luxembourg, but they disappeared again. Portugal have shot up, but given their volatility, I expect them to fall away again. And I think we'd be at the top. So Ireland has the fastest growing uh, real wages in the EU15, and possibly reflective of where our labour market is. Once our unemployment rate gets down to, to 5 4.5%, you are going to see competition for workers drive up wage rates, and that's what we're seeing. <laughs> the other country highlight is the UK. They seem to be at the top up to the middle of 2016. Something happened in the middle of 2016. They went down towards the bottom, and they are maybe slowly recovering their position uh, again. But they have gone a more of a roller coaster than us when it comes to, to changing wages. We've actually seen this slow, steady improvement. But I wouldn't yet have concerns about competitiveness. Uh, it still is a relatively modest increase in overall terms, uh, and maybe we are making up ground that we lost uh, during the crash. But I think in some sectors, you would clearly see uh, where wage pressures are, are stronger uh, than others. To take a second question <coughs> from uh, the Irish Times exit poll. So people said managing the economy was uh, important for them, but this second question asked them, did they benefit from the improvement in the economy? Uh, and this has taken the overall exit poll, I think that a sample of 3,500 or so, so quite a large sample. And given this performance of the economy, which from an overall perspective seems quite strong, 63% of 
when asked, did you benefit it, said no, does not apply to me. 37% said yes. <coughs> so maybe one of the sort of uh, issues that the outgoing government had is that even though the performance was quite strong and you look at it as being quite positive, almost two-thirds of people said it had no impact on them. And maybe that's, you can, in a sense, rationalise that. We had a 450,000 uh, increase in employment, a huge increase in employment. But that is 12, 13% of the adult population. It's a massive growth in jobs. But if you look at the overall population, what might consider the electorate, it might only be 12 or 13%. <coughs> and the biggest change has been people working. Yes, we have these, these rises in wages, but by far the largest change has been the increase in the number of people working. And given the crash, that's probably the benefit. What was the biggest impact of the crash? It was those that lost their jobs. It's in a sense good then that the biggest gain in the recovery has been the increase in employment. <laughs> but from a political perspective, Jim Carville's famous statement in the US in the 1992 presidential election, it's the economy, stupid, doesn't seem to be never reflected here. People perhaps identify that the economy is performing well, are willing to see that managing the economy is, is important, but unless it affects their pocket, maybe they don't necessarily vote on it. <coughs> so then looking at our external position, let me just take two snapshots. One, the flow of money, and two, the flow of people. And this, for, from an economist's perspective, is quite a very important measure. The current account of the balance of payments. Add up everything flowing in, subtract everything flowing out, and see where you are. In simple terms, it's like, are we living within our means? As was famously said, back the last time this went wrong, or the second last time this went wrong, in the early 90s. So this is a 50-year snapshot. You can see a general election in 1977. We decided we'd spend lots of money and borrow it, and that got us into problems. By the time you get to 80, 81, everybody wanted to be in government in 1977. Nobody wanted to be in government here. We had three general elections in 18 months. I'm not saying that's a, a foretelling of what's to come at present, but you can see where the problems emerged. <laughs> then you had the long drag of recovery during the 1980s. Then you can roll forward to 2003, 2004. Here it wasn't the government decided they wanted to spend money faster than they were earning. It was the rest of us. We all borrowed the money. And that turned down around 2003 and bottomed around around 2008 <laughs> and has been a very steady and large recovery in recent years. And now we've got to a position where we're running a pretty significant current account surplus. The amount of money we're earning as a country, significantly exceeds the amount of money we're spending. Once you look at those flows in and out, and this is, from an Irish perspective, unprecedented. So unemployment rate has only two precedents. Our flow of funds in and money in and out on a current basis, unprecedented, a very large surplus. And not to get into too much detail, but if you just look at it by sector, the improvement in recent years has all been driven by the green. Most of our sectors are relatively stable. And here at the green is the government. So the government was running a deficit four, five, six years ago. In recent years, has been improving, back to position of balance, minor position of surplus. There may be concerns about what's driving uh, that improvement in the public finances, particularly the surge in corporation tax, that all this money is pouring in to the exchequer through corporation tax, particularly from foreign companies. And that has aided this move from deficit to a minor position of surplus. For most of our sectors for the last number of years, they're really stable. The Navy is the household sector, paying off debts. This gold is the Irish banks improving their balance sheets. And the red is Irish businesses. <coughs> so relatively stable here, the government showing the improvement. 
So we've been improving our balance sheet position, household sector repaying debt, building up assets, the banks restoring their balance sheets, uh, and our business is not in bad shape as well. <coughs> and then just a second indicator of net flows, maybe to sort of belie the suggestion that this place is terrible uh, and that we need to <coughs> significant change. Just looking at net migration, the flow of people. So the last one was just a flow of money. Uh, we're now improving our, our overall financial position. This is a net migration, so negative, more people leaving the country than entering, positive, more people coming in. And we sort of have three periods where we got it very wrong. The 1950s, the 1980s, and the early 2010. So it does seem to happen on some sort of a 30-year cycle where things go <coughs> completely wrong. Maybe linked back to the last issue of the, uh, the balance of payments. Uh, I'd say it was bad in the 1950s. We saw it was bad in the early 1980s. And it got bad here in the early 2000s. We had the credit fuel peak that sort of skews some of the statistics. But if you look at the most recent outturns, net immigration, more people leaving, but now we're in a position of more people entering. Our net migration rate is what? About six per thousand population. It's about plus 33, plus 34,000. About 80, 85,000 people enter the country and about 50, 55,000 leave. So in net terms, there's 30,000 people a year moving to Ireland, seeing possibilities, seeing opportunities, and view it as an attractive place. So we've gone from net outward migration uh, to net inward migration. And that is maybe helping fill uh, some of the employment uh, opportunities that we saw right back at the start uh, 10 minutes or so ago. How are we sustaining the increase uh, in employment if our unemployment rate is down to 4 or 4.5%? Because if you look at the recent stats, our unemployment isn't changing a whole lot, but employment continues to rise. And this is one reason for it. So this is sort of a a positive flow of people coming. Of course, one consequence of that is that it might have an impact across the economy. So looking at some micro detail, on the day of the election, people were asked, which of these was most important to you in deciding how to vote today? So now we get down to, to sectors. I don't have to turn my head, but the first two are probably, probably well-known. Health, housing, homelessness. And then a variety of other minor ones. Pension age, jobs, climate change, something else. Not stated, taxation, crime, childcare, immigration, and Brexit. Got 1%. <coughs> Maybe linked to the overall performance of the economy. But I'm just going to focus on the, the second one here, housing and homelessness. Might have been appropriate to, to split it. Like I think there are differences between those looking to rent and buy houses <coughs> who could afford to but maybe don't have the opportunity and those who are in emergency accommodation. But it's not that it was quite a uh, important uh, topic during the election. And just to look at why things have gone wrong, and maybe why we might be moving to a stage where some improvement is seen. So we're going to look at the three sectors, the rental sector, the, the owner-occupier sector, the buying sector, uh, and the social housing sector. Um, so first of all, just looking at rental inflation, and you can see this is another roller coaster for Ireland. Going back to 2003, plus 10%, rapidly to minus 20%, back up to plus 10%. But rental inflation has been moderating uh, over the last 24 to 36 months. You can see it declining. So this is just looking at the most recent six years. It was north of 10%, has been falling. And in fact, in the most recent figures for January of this year, 
it dipped below 4% uh, for the first time in that six or seven years. 4% uh, being that threshold taken uh, for the um, rent restrictions, the rent controlled areas. Now this is a national picture, it would differ by particular areas, uh, but it does show that <coughs> rent inflation is easy, still at 4% quite significant, but if you look at it on a monthly basis, so these are the monthly changes, the January figure was somewhat surprising in that for the first time, this is January 2020, since June 2012, it was negative. We'd gone on a run of seven and a half years where monthly changes, as measured by the CSO, were either positive or at lowest zero. So January was the first time in seven and a half years it's been negative. Now, I won't say it's a indication of significant change, but you can see just that pattern of not having a zero for quite a long period of time. And if you just look at the levels that the CSO measures, so the CSO go and ring up people about actual rentals for housing that are paid. It's not new, it's existing and new. <coughs> this is just the last two years, January 2018, this onward ever upward trend, and then you get to the end of last year, September 2019, it appears to have leveled off. Now I'm not going to extrapolate that trend and say they're going to stay flat or declining, but I think you can see that there has been a shift at least for three or four months, and with this very minor drop uh, in January of this year. <coughs> so when, when rents were possibly beginning to see some level of stabilization, normalization, perhaps at uh, an excessively high level, but it is sort of a change away from the onward ever rise we saw over the last number of years. In the uh, owner-occupier sector, uh, a key uh, element here is the number of new houses being built so again, as measured by the CSO, not going back as long, they have a series that starts in 2011 uh, of annual housing completions. Number of new units built, and they break it down into this yellow line, housing estates, what they call scheme houses, this grey line, um, what they call single houses, one-off houses, rural houses, showing very little variation over the period. Uh, and one of the largest growth has been apartments, essentially zero and now beginning to rise. And total output for last year was over 20,000. So we were just north of, uh, or we were down to about 5,000 in 2012, 2013, building close to nothing. But it has risen and got over 20,000 uh, last year, and probably getting close to what we might need. Most estimates are probably between 30 and 50,000. Maybe 50,000 is a bit high. Maybe something closer to 30,000 is more of what we need. Uh, and one issue we must sort of work out is how much of an overhang did we have after the last construction boom when we were building 90,000 houses a year. Was this creating a shortage or were there overhang of houses available from the last construction bubble and maybe getting back to 30,000 would put us closer to an equilibrium level. <coughs> and if you look at inflation in house prices, looking at sort of the impact of the demand restrictions the central bank are imposing and the impact that had increased supply, towards the end of last year, in national terms, house price inflation was back to zero. So year-on-year -year comparison, uh, house price inflation was zero. Maybe the impact of that increased supply is feeding. And again, you can look at different sectors. There are some parts of the country where house prices are actually falling, other parts where they continue to rise. But in overall terms, we're back to zero. Not something we do very often. Boom, 
bust, 20% again. Could we keep it around a, a, a normal level of house price inflation? It's hard to know, but we have that opportunity to do it at present. And just looking at who's getting them and whether it's uh, having an impact on sort of household formation. These are just mortgage loan drawdowns uh, by first-time buyers. So you have the total. So 40,000 mortgages drawn down, 2004-5-6, down to essentially zero, and has risen again. For last year, in overall terms, there was 22,000 mortgages drawn down by first-time buyers. So there are opportunities out there and um, first-time buyers getting uh, properties. Now the composition has shifted. If you look back here, the red line, which was new houses, was larger than the green line second-hand houses. So first-time buyers are buying more new houses rather than second-hand houses. Here it's now switched. Second-hand houses exceed new houses. But this is again beginning to rise. <coughs> but given our existing stock and hopefully the increased building, we can perhaps begin to see some uh, stability in um, the purchase market. And then finally, the last point is just on the social housing segment uh, of the housing market. Uh, and this is one where the impact of the crash has been significantly felt. The government spending on building social housing, 1995 up to recently, <coughs> I think we can just see the drop. We went from committing about 0.7% of national income to the 2008, down to essentially zero. But again, like the private sector, maybe beginning to increase. And it takes a while to feed through. So the, the amount being spent by the government uh, and providing actual housing units is increasing. And again, that supply will work through. It takes time. This is only up to 2017. They've spent even more since. <coughs> and maybe just to, to finish on the ES, or the Irish Times exit poll, and maybe one reason why all this has been so hard to figure out. <laughs> one other question that was asked was, if the next government has resources to spare, should more of the money be used to reduce taxes, or should more be used to increase spending on public services? Remember, when we looked at the last chart, we had housing and health dominating what people wanted to see done, what they voted on. But here they were asked whether they wanted tax cuts or spending increases. And this is broken down by party. So you have Fianna Fáil, 36% saying focus on tax cuts. Fine Gael, 41% focusing on tax cuts. So that's the centre and the centre right done. Let's move to the left. Sinn Féin, 43% favour tax cuts. Is that right? And you're there? Yes, it is. <coughs> so of people that voted in a particular way, based on ho housing, homelessness, public services, when I asked it, was spare money going, what should we use it for? 43% so that you go to cutting taxes. So I think just from an economist perspective, political scientist perspective, I'd be wary of reading too much into the election result. I think there's a lot going on under the surface <laughs> between what people want and what a government can deliver. Thanks very much.